Welcome to Unconventional Thinkers. My name is Kawan Saluja. On this episode, we speak with Lisa Romano, the breakthrough life coach and author of several books, including The Road Back to Me and Codependent, Now What? Among the topics we speak about include her unbelievable recovery from a deeply traumatic childhood, her personal crusade to help people recover from codependency, the importance of feeling your feelings, and so much more. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Lisa Romano. Well, Lisa, uh, thank you so much. Uh, this is a privilege uh, for me. Um, you know, I'll start by saying um, I don't think anybody creates more um, uh, quality content on a consistent basis. And, uh, you know, I've had my share of hours on YouTube than you do and uh, both uh, free and paid content. But I would like to start off with, uh, you know, your your background, your story and how you got, um, you know, kind of where you started and how you got to here and what here is. Okay, me. sure. Well, thank you so much for wanting to interview me. It's a great privilege to speak to somebody who cares about what I do. So, and uh, so I appreciate you as well. I appreciate people who are fighting for their light and who have been traumatized and who are struggling and um, are willing to do the work to get to the other side of what can be a very dark life experience. So, um, so I'm going to try to, well, I was born to two adult children of alcoholics. Um, my dad's mother committed suicide when he was three and his father was a violent alcoholic. Um, I would say my dad, as a result of all the trauma, fleed or, or flew into himself, never came out. And unfortunately today exhibits high narcissistic traits, a lack of empathy for others, which I understand now, you know, through all my recovery, I can understand how a severely traumatic background can, can make someone afraid to feel vulnerable ever again. My mom was uh, born to two alcoholics, mother and father, obviously, and she became very codependent. She had me at 19, and right before I was born, my grandfather died, her, her dad died. And so my mom is married to my dad, who has high narcissistic traits. Her father just passed away. She's never felt really connected to either of them, and I'm her firstborn child. And so I think that um, my mom had a lot of a lot going on, and I think that I bore the brunt of a lot of heart unresolved trauma, including sexual abuse. She was sexually abused and never talked about it, never went into recovery. And as a result, growing up, I was emotionally abused. There were times where she um, would be physically abusive, um, highly critical. There was no bond between me and my mom. And I always felt like there was a pane of glass between she and she and I. And I wanted so desperately to connect to her, and I was just unable to. And the only thing that felt good was getting out of her reality. Like, if I could get away from her, then she'll be happy. And she was. So I carried that with me. I ended up being a severe love addict, ended up with eating disorders, um, and really, really severely, severely codependent. I married my first husband. I got engaged at 21. I never should have, but I did. And I went ahead and had three children. It was a very unhappy marriage. In my humble opinion, he has high narcissistic traits and I was severely codependent. So it was a, it was like oil, um, that, you know, it was like a match to gasoline. It wasn't a good combination. 
I begged to feel seen, but I was married to someone who didn't want to see me. And I just kept plugging away, trying to be seen, people pleasing, fawning, the whole bit. My body was breaking down, severe asthma, migraine headaches, rashes, tremendous blocks in my body. And a doctor said to me, you better listen to your body because your body's listening to you. And I was so afraid that I was going to die because my sister-in-law had passed away at 28. She was a few years younger than me. I knew that young mothers could die. I had experienced it. And so I knew that I had to leave my marriage. And I remember approaching my ex-husband and saying, I, I want to go into therapy. And his response was, if you're crazy, you should go into therapy. I think you should go into therapy because, you know, you're not right in the head, you know? <laughs> you know, I was like, okay, I went into therapy. And thank God, it was like the fourth ther fourth or fifth therapist that I had been to. But he was the one who said to me, tell me about your background. And I was like, I want to talk about my marriage. He's like, no, tell me about your parents. And I was like, okay, I'll play. And he said, is there any alcoholism in your family? And I said, no, my parents don't drink. And he said, that's not what I asked you. And you know when you talk to somebody who is like completely centered and it freaks you out because your mind is like racing. Yeah. <laughs> and you just, you know, you've just happened upon this like little like uh, Buddha who's like really centered and he want, he's trying to ground you too. Or you feel like, oh man, like, I don't, I feel like I just took like a Xanax or something like, you know, cause he was so centered and my mind just got very aware and it stopped rattling around, and I realized that I didn't answer his question. And his question, the way he phrased it was, that's not what I asked you. It got my attention. It was like somebody slapped me in the face, and I was suddenly present. And I said, oh, okay. I said, well, both sets of my grandparents are alcoholics. He's like, ah, okay. So your parents are adult children of alcoholics. And I was like, hmm, I guess so. And it's like, okay, I have good news, I have bad news. The good news is that you're not crazy, but the bad news is you're highly codependent. And I was dumbfounded because I'd been to nursing school and the only um, time I had ever heard the word codependency used in the psychology classes was as it related to being married to an alcoholic. And I wasn't married to an alcoholic. And so, but I was at the end of my rope quant. I was I was so desperate. I was like, if you told me I had to eat grass for like 24 hours, I would have done it. So when he said you're codependent, I was like, okay, I could, I could buy that. And I, it just changed my life on the road to understanding what codependency was. I was ferocious. And what I realized was yes, codependency is a thing. But we have to also understand that the brain is both unconscious and conscious at the same time. We have to understand that children are brainwashed literally in hypnotic brainwave states up until the age of seven. So therefore, it could be no other way that I had emotional issues, that I, I was cognitively arrested, that I had no life skills, that I, peop I was stuck in people-pleasing mode like a hamster on the wheel, that I hated myself that I suffered with tremendous guilt and tremendous shame, that I was frustrated. It literally could be no other way based on where I came from. And once I started to unravel it, I wanted to do nothing more than to teach people that it's not you, it's just your programming. 
so that's how I ended up where I am today. Um, you, you talked, uh, you know, I think like codependency is this weird twisted form of like perfectionism um, and exhausting. Um, what, uh, how would you define codependency for uh, someone who hasn't, um, you, know, is, you know, is not familiar with the word? Um, I knew, I'd heard of the word and I briefly um, seen Melody Beatty talk about it, but I was like, okay, I'll get, whatever. Right. <laughs> to see that that is at the root of a lot of not just my problems, but a lot of people's problems. And um, how would you define codependency? So I, I too, when I first read about codependency, I was like, I get it, but I think it's a lot bigger than most people realize. That's just my opinion. So I'm on a personal crusade to try to like maybe open up people's minds to the term, just break the word down, co dependent it's certainly not in independent right it's not interdependent it's codependent and so we are literally codependent on something or an action or a thing or a person or a thought a food we are codependent on something other than the self to feel seen to feel validated to help us deal with our emotions we're not doing it independently. We're not living our lives, fulfilling our own values, living our own dreams. We're not feeling our emotions. We're using something outside of ourselves to distract us from being self-actualized, from becoming fully self-aware and embodying what it means to be an independent person. So you can be codependent on a coworker. You can be codependent on um, a belief system. You can be codependent on a person. So this idea of being codependent on something outside of you to make your life experience more tolerable. And the goal is really to break free of this codependency and learn how to completely rely on the self to satisfy the self, to become self-actualized, to become a person who feels confident that they can handle life's challenges on their own as they come, regardless of those challenges. Um, for us, how do you, uh, how does someone who's, you know, the thought of a question like, what do you want or what do you feel is either preposterous, low priority, um, or something that is just, that's never even uh, come across people's minds? How would you, um, you know, I, I, I mean, honestly, sometimes like early on, or earlier, I would just get going in kind of a full-blown panic. I'm like, wow, um, when do I answer that question? Maybe, you know, maybe that's like, you know, do this, 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 you know, codependent, and then I'll do this. Exactly. And, you know. Um, that speaks to like what I just said, this idea that you could be codependent on a thought process or a process. So I think that if I set this goal and I achieve this goal, then I'll be happy. I worked with a world-class athlete once who um, made his dream come true, right? Had trained for such a long time, won his medal, and he said, Lisa, as I was dropping the bar, I felt myself completely implode because I had done what I wanted to do and I still wasn't happy. He was codependent on, I'll do this and then I'll be happy. That's what codependents do. I'll make a nice spaghetti dinner. He'll be happy. Then I'll be happy. 
You know, I'll buy the right house and then I'll be happy. I'll get the right job and then I'll be happy. We're codependent on something outside of ourselves, right? So there's this attachment that we psychologically have, some belief system that has us believing that if we attach to something outside of ourselves, then we'll be happy. So when someone like, you know, someone comes up to me and says, well, I freak out when someone says to me, what would make you happy? What I do is I want people to understand that that's not their fault, right? So, because when I ask somebody what would make you happy and they go, I don't know, immediately shame moves in. There's something wrong with me. I don't know what I want. Oh my God, what lions and tigers and bears. How have I been spending my life? What is pushing, what is the wind, the wind beneath my wings? Why am I doing what I'm doing? If I don't even know what is making me happy, am I just doing? And if I'm doing, why am I doing? Why am I doing? So when someone has this reality and, and it happens to my first therapy session with the therapist I just talked about, he said, what would make you happy? And I went right into, well, my husband and I don't meet on the same page. Like we share different realities. My mother thinks I'm crazy. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't ask you what makes you unhappy. And I was like, what? what? He said, I asked you what made you happy. I was dumbfounded. My blood went cold. I was like, where am I? Where have I been? What is happening? Who's in my head? Who's running my life? I don't know what's happening here. And I was very shaken, very shaken. As I began to understand the quantum nature of the universe, I was like, no wonder I keep getting what I don't want. My focus is on what I don't want. It's not on what I want, right? But I knew that if I could figure it out, if I figured it out and I could take it in bite-sized pieces, I can learn how to figure out what it is that I want. But the first thing I think that we have to do is address the shame. Because that's the first thing that showed up in me when he asked me that question and I didn't have an answer. I was like, oh, I'm defective. I knew it. Something wrong with me. And so I would say to someone like that, it's not your fault. Right? It's not your fault that you're setting goals and you think that's going to make you happy. That comes from childhood programming. That comes from parents. That also comes from society. Right. So your brain and your mind, your personality has been conditioned to think this is the way. And you're just discovering it's not the way that there's something deeper, that there's some innate aspect of me that needs to be actualized in the 3D world. There's some metaphysical aspect of me. Right. Some ethereal aspect of me that wants to be materialized in the 3D world. I'm a physical body in a world of form. I have these innate gifts that for now are metaphysical because they haven't manifested them yet. And I've come to somehow align with them so that I can make them physical in the 3D world. And so the first thing I want to do is make sure that nobody feels shame over that or they understand why they feel the way they, the way they feel. And then we go through a series of questions. I ask them, what kinds of things made you happy as a child when no one was looking? When no one was looking, when the door was closed and no one was around, who were you under the sheets and in the closet and in the bathroom on your way to on your way to school? Who were you imagining yourself to be when no one would, when you knew when you thought that your mind was safe? What were you pretending? What did you want to be? What kinds of experiences did you see yourself having? When I was seven, I wanted to be a writer. I also wanted to be a singer, <laughs> you know, maybe an actress. 
You know, those are the things that I wanted to do when I was little. Um, and that's what I started to do. I started to go back and remember the child I was in those little innocent moments when I didn't think anybody was listening and I dared to dream. Before three, four, five, what kinds of things did you do when you were a child that took you away from space and time? I remember watching my daughter, and if I put a crayon in her hand or some Play-Doh, she was gone for six hours. Just, I would have to shake her and say, Michelle, you have to eat something. Time stopped. You know what? She found the flow. When you find the flow, time stops. Time's irrelevant. So think about the times in your life when you found that flow. What were you doing? Who were you with? What were those experiences? And then write about them. And then think about how you can create those moments in your life now. When I started to figure this out, I knew that I wanted to write. And so I started a blog. Then before GoDaddy and Wix and all these uh, WordPress, I was on the phone with somebody from Canada that spoke French, trying to figure out how to create a website. That was hysterical, but I did it. I dedicated myself to 20 minutes a day and I said, rather than reading the daily news that was full of nonsense and horrible stories, I actually had that awareness, like 20 minutes a day, I just absorbed myself in the worst of humanity. Why? Why do I have to know? I don't have to know this. This is taking away from my life experience. So I said, for 20 minutes a day, I'm going to take that time and devote it solely to creating a website so I can write and reach people and inspire people and help them know it's not you, it's your programming. Because I learned, wow, when I was a kid and I wrote, I was in the flow. I didn't think about making money. I didn't think about writing my book. I didn't think about who was going to hear it, like this podcast. Who knows who's going to hear it? It doesn't matter. Are you having fun? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Interviewing is the matters. best part. Well, research and interviewing. That's all that matters. So you have to find things that don't even think about making money. Don't worry about who's going to hear it, who's going to enjoy it. Take that off the table. Bring it back to your life experience. Bring it into your heart space. What brings you the flow? F everybody. Seriously. I mean that sincerely. Like it is time to block out the noise, the mental chatter. It is time to figure out what you like to do that makes you happy. It's time to just silence the critics. Don't let them in. And if you do what you love a little bit every day, you tap into the flow of abundance. You tap into it. And if you do it enough, because of the quantum nature of reality, if you do it enough, Kawant, you start to pick up momentum. And before you know it, this will take on a life of its own. You, uh, there's a lot there. Uh, one of the things you reminded me, of, and I always thought it was very fascinating to watch his progression was Michael Phelps. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most gold medals of all time, but every time between the Olympics and and flow, <laughs> you're also a huge thing. He would kind of fall apart um, and get in some trouble, and you know, it's a it's 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 unfair uh, microscope. But you know, he just um, I remember his I think it was his second or third Olympics. He just said. He was just going through the motions and saying all the, the right stuff on the Today interviews, but he was miserable. And the other person I was thinking about, and you don't have to like tennis, 
I love tennis, but you don't have to like tennis. It's probably the only sports book which I've read that was really raw was Agassi's book, mm-hmm. um, where he was at. The, he said, "I hate tennis," and people would laugh, and he'd say, "No, actually, I really do." And um, you know, at his at his peak, he was more worried about his uh, toupee coming off and doing crystal meth, you know, and the truth set him free um, because his book wasn't particularly, it was very honest and it threw a lot of people under the bus. But like you said, he had to write it. Um, he had to write it. And, um, and it's really, it's so true. You know, people say, oh, you know, I've, I've used that term all the time. The truth sets you free, but it's usually not very pretty. Yeah. Right. And when you tell your truth, something magical happens you stop separating from the self. What hurts us is we separate from the self. We separate from what we really feel. We, and, and, and that codependency is what's separating us from accepting what we feel and who we are. Because codependency, by definition, we're more worried about what other people think and what they feel and what they need. We're more worried about their criticism. We're hinging our reality on their reality of us, right? And all of this creates the separation in self. We're afraid to tell our truth, right? And so when we start to tell our truth, as ugly as it is, there's a merging, there's an integration that happens, right? And it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, we, I think it's best to tell your truth with the intention of just sharing your truth and not wanting to hurt people. Right. So when I wrote my book, I changed all the names. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I wasn't trying to out anybody, but I couldn't be real without explaining the characters in my life. And so the intention of me writing my book about my family was because there was a bigger story to be told. It wasn't about outing my parents and telling the world how terrible they were. To the contrary, I came away from that experience having tremendous empathy for them. But I also had to acknowledge what their unawareness did to me as a child and, and the battering that happened in my psyche and the consequences, the habitual consequences, the habits that were formed, both physical habits and emotional habits and mental habits, the lack of cognitive skills that I had, there was a consequence to their unconsciousness. You know, so um, tell your story, but tell it for the right reasons. Um, you, you have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, great, you know, it's not you, it's your programming. You're not codependent. You're, uh, crazy. Um, you're not crazy. You're codependent. Oh, it's, yeah, it's just, <laughs> you're not codependent. You're crazy. No, it's the other way. Let's, yeah, let's, yeah. let's fix that. One of my favorites, uh, <laughs> things that I've come across is curiosity freed the cat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe, uh, Love that. no, that was yours. I said that. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> I no, no, no. You, uh, like you said, you yes, produce. I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly don't know. You're a content creating machine, and I don't know how you, uh, how you do it. You're, uh, you're, you're very involved uh, in your classes. Having taken one of uh, the the class, you're also posted additional videos um, on uh, on YouTube. I, I, you know, what book number are you on now? Um, well, I think I have six published, but I'm working on a children's book. And I have almost completed another book. So it'll be eight books. Okay. 
so like, yeah, the, so, the, you know, amidst of it, I'd never actually, I, I believed it. I mean, I think that was something that like really appealed to my inner child, but curiosity freed the cat. That was, that was not me. I did not come. I mean, I could take credit for it, but uh, that was, uh, uh, that, that was you. Um, I'm going to make a meme about that tomorrow, Kawans. That's it. It's going to be a social media meme. But come on, curiosity does free the cat, right? Think about it. If you don't know why you do what you do, you can't change anything, right? We know more about our cell phones than we do about how and why our minds operate, you know? And it's what I, you know, I don't know why, but this thought came to me after my mom passed away. What happens in one space happens across space. So if my computer's broken, or let's say my car, if my car is broken, the first thing I do is take it to a mechanic. The first thing he does is says, what does it sound like? What's a car feel like? Then he looks under the hood, right? You go to the doctor, tell me how you're feeling. Why is it okay for me to tell a doctor that I'm having chest pain? And why is it okay for him to give me some type of a sonogram or echocardiogram to find out why I feel this way. We should be naturally teaching people that if you feel that way, let's figure out why. Because there's a reason. If I have chest pain and I need a stent, then the chest pain is because I have a clogged artery, which might be deeper because the way I'm eating, deeper might be depression, right? So if I'm depressed, rather than judge myself, Let's figure out why I feel this way. If I'm codependent, don't judge me. It's a symptom. Let me figure out why. If I'm struggling with this, let me figure out why. Curiosity, freeze the cat. You're right. I'm right. What are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I do think we spend a lot of time addressing the symptoms and not what like is the foundational uh, thing and, you know, quick fixes. Um <sighs> I say that all the time. I'm like, when I was, when I was figuring out, I was codependent. I was like, okay, I read all the books, but I was like, where are the tools? I need to know what I'm going to do when my mother insults me in front of my children again. What am I going to do? I need to know what I'm going to do when I'm walking across the street. I'm having a panic attack. Come on. I need to know what I'm going to do when my brother triggers me and I want to stick a fork in his eye because no one frustrates me more than him. What do I do? I did. Okay. And so that's why I said, no, 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 no. And that's what entrepreneurs do, right? They see a space and they think, you know what? Something needs to go in that space. And I'm going to figure out what that something is. And that's what I did. I realized that there was a big, big space in codependency recovery. We, we hear so much about it. We read so much about it. It's a lot of knowledge and information but give me concrete tools. And that's what, that's what I hope to bring. Speaking of tools, uh, you have uh, some very powerful tools. Uh, I'd like to go through a couple of them. Uh, sure. One I do quite a bit. And the other one, uh, let's just say there's need, uh, a need for improvement. So first I'd like to uh, ask, what is the one, two, three process? So, so glad you asked that question. So the one, two, three process was a process that I came up with as I was learning to heal from codependency because while I was in recovery, I was noticing that I was making progress. So I, I knew that I wanted to share it one day. And so I broke it down. So codependents usually think they don't feel. And 
there's a huge difference between thinking and feeling. We've been taught not to feel because we're separated from the self because we're codependent on something outside of ourselves. And so when I realized that I was thinking and not feeling, I also realized I have to learn to feel. If I'm going to be self-actualized, I have to learn to honor how I feel. And so going through this, this whole thing in my head, I realized that most oftentimes I don't accept how I feel. I have a feeling and I whoop, I push it away. Whether it's shame or denial or dissociation, or I don't think that I have a right to feel. Whatever it is, I wasn't accepting how I felt. So the first step is when you notice a feeling, accept how you feel. Whatever it is, if it's panic, if it's disgust, if it's rage, if it's anger, if it's guilt, shame, just accept it because you feel it. Have brown eyes, accept it. You have a feeling, it showed up, accept it. You got a toothache, accept it. A feeling shows up, like an earache shows up, you have to accept it, just accept it. Honor it, first step. Stop dissociating, pushing it away and denying it. So the first step is accept how you feel. The second step is feel it. And when I say feel it, make a mental note of how your body lets you know you feel something. So when you step on attack, the nerve endings in your foot alert your brain to this idea that you stepped on attack. That's the process. It's the same thing with feelings. So your body is telling you, oh, stepped on attack, right? So when you feel something, your body is telling you, you're feeling, pay attention. So the first step is accept how you feel. The second step is feel your feelings, make a mental note of how you feel. Like where is anger showing up for you? How do you know that you're angry? For me, my ears get hot, my heart beats out of my chest. That's how I know something's happening. I've been trained. The third step is you're gonna decide. This is the money step for a codependent. Because codependents do not make decisions about how they feel. They react to how they feel. Sometimes they don't even make a decision about how they feel. So that's where you're going to create the momentum. Accept how you feel. Feel what you're going to feel. Feel what you feel. Decide what you're going to do about it. But you have to run the decision before you make a decision. You have to ask yourself three questions. What about this situation can't I control? then you have to let go of what you can't control. What can I control? Focus in that area, but also ask yourself, what's the goal? For me, I know very clearly after being on the road for so long, I want peace. I don't want bullshit. I don't want arguments. I don't, I hate being frustrated. I want flow. So let's say my brother and I are having a conversation I can hear some gaslighting happening. I'm triggered. I'm getting pissed off. I feel it. I acknowledge it. I accept it. I know I'm getting pissed off because the way my heart feels, I'm just immediately irritated. I'm constricting. I'm out of the flow. I'm not trusting him. I don't know what's going to happen next. I'm acknowledging all of this mentally. I know that I have to make a decision. So what can't I control? I can't control that I'm already annoyed because I am. It's a fact. I can't control that he's doing this. What can I control? I can control whether or not I fight with him and I can control whether or not I end the conversation. And so usually that's what I'll do because I want flow. So I won't end the conversation rudely. I'll just say, you know what? 
it was really nice talking to you, but I have to go, you know, um, I have a client or I've got some laundry that I have to get to. And I just end the conversation. And so I accept how I feel, feel what I feel, decided what I wanted to do about it because I wanted ultimately peace and flow. He showed off my experience. He irritated me. I don't want to be in that constricted state. I want flow. How do I get back in the flow? So that's the one, two, three process. And I use it all the time. Yeah, I, I, I find I, I, I struggle with the, the second part, uh, the where do I feel it? But it, I think it's really powerful, both the first uh, for me and that end goal, like what you what you refer to as peace and flow, because there's a lot of and I mean, I think this is also in therapy circles, but there's a lot of well, you shouldn't feel that way. And, oh, um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's, 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 then it's starting off in the right, wrong direction, because then it, I think it, it's a lot of judgment. Um, and uh, totally. that was liberating um, uh, part of it, where it's like, well, I, I just feel this way. Like, that's what a kid says, like, <laughs> why are you doing something? Because I feel like it. You know, and, and the, 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 the way I came up with that concept was when I did a side by because my mind is very analytical and I it just, you know, if 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 I could figure out what happens in a normal family. And I did a side by side analysis in what happens in an unhealthy family. So when I studied healthy families, children feel seen. Their emotions are encouraged. They're never told you shouldn't feel that way. They're never shamed. They're encouraged to explore their feelings so that they can process their feelings. They're mirrored. I see you. Okay, you're angry. That's okay. You're frustrated. That's okay. It's totally fine to be frustrated. That is a, that is a complete contrast to what I grew up with. You want to cry? I'll give you a reason to cry. Get upstairs. Come over here. You want to cry? Let me smack you in the head. Then you have a reason to cry. Eat that liver and onions. I love liver and onions craziness right and so i realized i have to give myself that i have to give myself that i have to allow myself to feel even if i want to stick a fork in my brother's eye doesn't mean i'm going to my brain just gave me that picture because that represents the amount of frustration doesn't mean i would act on it i have a feeling and my brain is showing me this is how frustrated you are this is the mental picture you have but I'm a rational person. I would never act on it. But the first step is you've got to accept how you feel. Because we have been taught since day one, we shouldn't feel that way. Um, it, you're talking about a side-by-side -side comparison. Recently, you put some uh, a great uh, in, um, interdependent versus codependent yes. graphic. So um, I want to get to the uh, second uh, sure. tool, uh, which is, <laughs> is a little a little uh harder to implement and i actually never heard the term before but there's this practice shati shati that you say so um could if you could elaborate sure. on that sure so um there's power in silence codependents tone themselves down they hang out in the shadows they're afraid to put themselves out there because they're afraid of criticism and ridicule they've been disempowered and so oftentimes, codependents will not say anything, right? So they will shut down. And other times, codependents are highly reactive. They can't shut up. And they just keep going on and going on and going on. and go Where's the shutoff valve, right? And so 
when I was studying the ego, the id, the superego, I realized the aspect of a personality that's codependent is the ego. Ego is designed to mitigate with the external world. That's, that's the whole purpose of ego, right? Sure. And so ego, think about a narcissist who needs to be gratified. Where is the narcissist getting gratified? From the environment, from someone in the external environment. Think about a codependent. A codependent need, thinks they need something from the environment, right? And so shati shati comes from me recognizing the power of detaching and not adding to a hopeless situation. When I'm in a re reactive state, my ego is engaged and my root chakra is engaged. My survival instincts are engaged. So you could think about a ram with these big horns, right, to represent one ego. And when that ram is kicked up and upset and reactive, it's looking for another ram to lock horns with. And so when I shut shutty, when I shut shutty, I withdraw from this conversation that's going nowhere, and I'm assured that I'm not being reactive. When I shut shutty, I'm soothing myself. You don't need to have this conversation. You don't need this. We just had this experience with what you posted on Facebook, right? I said to you, relax. Relax. Shutty shutty, Kwan. Do nothing. Don't try to fix it. There's nothing wrong, right? Sometimes the best thing to do is withdraw. Somebody insults you, let them. Let them, right? That's their ego. Don't engage your ego. Two rams locking, right? On, I get great practice because every once in a while, not so often, but it's really awesome because when I first started making YouTube videos and I got insulted, I was crushed. And now I'm just like, okay, no problem. It just rolls off my back, you know? Because I'm not so wounded anymore, you know? And I recognize that anybody that has to curse me, hurt me, throw shade my way, there's something going on inside of them. That's, there's some pain there. There's some trauma there. Because the more you heal, you don't want to hurt anybody. You don't even want to hurt a fly. Because you're representing that, you understand that that fly represent, represents a particular aspect of creator who's responsible for creating everything you know so um shati shati is very very powerful so rather than speak to someone that you know can't hear you shati shati i like i'm sorry go ahead it's okay um how, boundaries how does one set and enforce uh, boundaries okay so when you say enforce you have to use that word loosely because you can't make someone adhere to a boundary. What you can do is set a boundary, hope that they enforce it. And if they don't, then use the one, two, three process. So if I live with someone and I say, please don't use my shampoo, right? Stop coming into, I have three roommates. Please don't come into my room. I leave my door open when I go to work in the afternoon, in the morning, um, and one roommate consistently takes my shampoo from the bathroom and I go into the bathroom and I see that they have my shampoo in the bathroom. I've already said, please don't use my shampoo. They don't use my, sh they continue to violate my space. One, two, three process. I'm pissed off. I accept how I feel. What am I going to do about it? I can't control 
what she's already done. What can I control? I'm going to put a damn lock on my door. Now she can't come in my room. So if you're not going to adhere to a boundary that I'd like you to adhere to, then I'm going to figure out what I can do in the physical world so that I can stay in the flow because I don't like to come home and know that you're in my space and you violated it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think actually uh, a lot of people that I've dealt with are very um, respective to boundaries. I think I, I, when I say enforce is enforcing the boundaries that I set like personally. Um, I find very difficult. Like for example, I'll be on a phone and I say I have less. I don't like the phone. I, I like texting. I, lo- I love writing emails. I have articulate. I listen better. Um, Me too. Um, and I'll say, Hey, I only have 15 minutes. And the next thing I know it's been, <laughs> let's just say it's been longer than 15 minutes by a factor of at least two and a half. Let's just say that. Um, so, so, and that is a part, um, that, you know, I just, um, I think is, when you're not true to yourself, and that is when you when you set up when you have ideas that seem to come organically, you know there's some ideas that come from a codependent state of mind, the shoulds, and then there's some that's like, look, uh, I need to put first things first. Um, I love talking uh, professional basketball. I got into a half hour chat at work the other day. Like I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know. So what you want to do is, you know, this all goes back to honoring the self, like what, which is what you said. So you have to put some thought in front of it. So a boundary is no different than building a bridge, right? There are components that you have to set in place. Before you can build a bridge, you have to have a concept of a bridge. Once you have a concept, you need some blueprints, right? After blueprints, you need some materials. After that, you need some manpower. So setting a boundary is like building a bridge. You can't Think about setting a boundary in the, in the moment and expect it to work. But if you say to yourself, I would like to have a boundary around how much time I spend on the phone. Build the bridge. Think about it. What does that look like? What I would suggest to you is before you even answer the phone, make sure that you have 15 minutes on your, on your clock, five minutes or 10 minutes into the conversation, you're already winding the conversation down. You're not adding to the conversation. You're not asking any more follow-up questions, right? You're letting, listen, buddy, I I, got to be off the phone in like five minutes. So everybody knows, right? And then you say, you know what? It's it's 15 minutes. I hate to stop you. I wish I had more time, but I got to go. It was great talking to you. you. So you build that bridge, And then you utilize that bridge the next time you have a conversation. And the more you do that, it's going to come like that. So once you feel like you need a personal boundary, build it, then use it. Uh, That's uh, brilliant. Um, Brilliant advice. Uh, um, In researching this, uh, you know, when you were in in the early stages of your recovery, um, you committed, I think, to an hour of uh, at least an hour a day of just uh, personal development work. Um, my guess is that a lot of it, um, that a certain portion of it was centered around journaling or writing or whatever you want. Could you, um, talk about the importance of writing, um, in, in, in this process or journaling or journal prompts? I, I believe in the heart, the head, heart, hand connection. I believe that as a, as a writer, I am always amazed when I sit down alone a little candle burning, and I start to write. 
because what if I write for more than 10 or 15 minutes, I start to connect to my emotions. And so writing saved me because I knew that I had to excavate myself. I knew that I had to sit there and I had to learn how to honor the inner child inside of me that was so exploited, that was so abandoned, that was so criticized and so ridiculed, that was completely abandoned. And I would do that at least an hour a day where I would think about something from the past, from my childhood. And I would just write about that one incident. And before you knew it, I was remembering another incident. Again, it's the brain has all these compartments. And when we're ready to deal with something and we give ourselves the space to do it, we can unlock it. And I knew that in lock, opening up all these doors, I have a meditation where you go down into the basement and you open up all these doors. That's what writing was like for me. Oh, I found another door and I got to stick with it. As, as painful as it was, I have to stick with it. I have to feel these feelings. And so um, writing for 10 or 15 minutes a day is okay. It's better than not. But if you commit to like an hour a day where you're just going to ponder about things that you feel, you'll be surprised at what comes up. And, you know, as part of the program, I offer, because not everybody knows how to journal. You know, I had lettuce and cucumbers for lunch and a salmon and potato. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about accessing, bridging, integrating, becoming one with the pen, one with the piece of paper, one with your thoughts. Codependence is sliced up. And writing helps bring us all together. So it's very important to journal. Um, I really like your point about more than uh, uh, 15 minutes. Uh, I haven't done it for a while. But uh, looking back, um, morning pages from Julia Cameron's Artist Way, uh, it was any time of the day pages for me. Um, mm -hmm. And when I was doing that, uh, there was a clarity that emerged the longer, you know, at first it was just this, on the superficial level. And then I was like, oh, this is sort of smart. You know, like, like this is, wow, there's something here. And so I really liked how you, uh, you know, I needed to be reminded personally because it's been a while uh, since I've done the full, like, I think morning pages would take me anywhere from, or let, let me call it any time of the day pages, 30 to 45 minutes yep. um, to do. And that was something that uh, I totally forgot about. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad. You know, a lot of, you know, that's why with the 12 week class, um, I moderate it and I control when people get the lessons because I want them to spend a week on this, this one lesson. And I want them to have a week to complete the journaling prompts. I want it to sink in. I want layers and layers and layers and layers to be revealed. Um, and controlling when people get the lessons, right? It kind of like teaches them to slow themselves down. In the beginning, everyone's like, ah, you know, the first couple of weeks. But after like week four, people are settling in like, okay, I got to dedicate like maybe a half hour in the morning and a half an hour at night. It's you have to dedicate when you were a child, your parents were supposed to dedicate their life to you. They were supposed to attune themselves to you so that you could attune yourself to self. Right? So we have to, those of us who have been broken in childhood, we have to take ourselves seriously. And I don't think an hour a day is asking much. 
Most of us spend so much time watching damn Game of Thrones or we watch Netflix series, right? We have time to watch freaking crap that's going on on Instagram or scrolling Facebook. Steal those moments. Focus on the self. Integrate. It will save your life. Yeah, I, I don't think, um, you know, on the deathbed, they'll be like, I wish I watched more Netflix or I wish I watched more uh, of that. Um, uh, another uh, powerful tool, and, and it's available on Insight Timer, where some of your uh, meditations are, YouTube, uh, your class. Um, and you have a, a, first, could you talk about the importance of meditation? And second, your meditation, like any other, every meditation has a style. Um, yours has, uh you know, I won't put words in your mouth. So, uh, you know, I would just say that it's it's both guided and it has a certain kind of waves uh, underlying it. So uh, just, you know, the importance of meditation and then what your meditation specifically does and why it's okay. geared to people. So when again, my 12 week class and everything that I offer is is really um, the roadmap that I that I used to get better. And I knew that I ruminated. I knew that I had anxiety. I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety disorder, all these disorders, right? And I noticed that I was having negative thoughts, but I couldn't catch them. They were just running through my head. And it was sort of like I imagined like a field of butterflies in my head. And I just had to catch one. If I just, if I could just catch one broken butterfly, I'd be good because my mind was racing all the time. And so I knew that meditation could help me do that. And so when I first started meditating, I would do any meditation. I would do third eye meditations, grounding meditations, um, meditations to help me feel less stress, anything that I could put earbuds on and I could just not have to think. And when I first started, I realized that my mind was still racing for like 20 minutes. It took me like 20 minutes into a meditation. It's like these 10 minute, 15, 20 meditations, no good for me. I needed an hour, two hours, three hours. Because my mind was like, I gotta do the laundry. Oh my God, there's a stain on my daughter's uniform. Oh my God, I have to sew her socks. Oh my God, I, I just, and I'm supposed to be meditating, right? But I noticed in observing myself, after about 20 minutes, I chilled out a little bit. After about 45 minutes, I was actually able to sometimes fall asleep. Like, and I thought that was awesome. So I said, I'm on to something. So in addition to journaling, I made sure that I med- meditated every day just so I could slow down my thoughts. Then what started to happen was I realized that my mind wasn't racing so much. I was feeling better in my own skin. And when a negative thought popped up or a codependent idea popped up, I was like, there it is. And now instead of there being a million butterflies in my head, there were one or two. And suddenly I was able to use the one, two, three process. Suddenly I had something to chew on during my my journaling prompts. I had a thought. I didn't like that thought. Let me write about that thought. Where did that thought come from? Why did I do that thing? Meditation helps you slow down your mind. It reduces your blood pressure. It's just great for you overall. It's an amazing tool. Um, and it's very important. My meditations are specifically designed to reprogram the wounded subconscious mind. And so I create meditations that 
are uh, language specific, meaning they address childhood programming. So I speak directly to the inner child. The inner child was very susceptible to information from the environment. The inner child was in a theta brainwave state when they were being brainwashed. Um, I hope to create meditations with specific, specific brainwaves um, technology that allow the person who's receiving the information almost, almost access the inner child directly with this information he or she should have received when they were in a powerless state. They were powerless to push back what they were being programmed to believe. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. What are your, uh, and I, like I was saying, I really appreciate your time and uh, just a, a couple more questions. What sure. were some of your, uh, what were some of your influences and uh, what are your uh, favorite books or books that you would recommend? So Melody Beatty blew the wall open for me. So her book, Codependent No More, was very critical for me, um, really helped me understand codependency. It allowed me the ability to see myself and for me to recognize it, my marriage was codependent, but I was codependent. So for so long, I thought he just doesn't listen to me. He's obstinate. He's passive aggressive. Blah, blah, blah. Then I realized oh, I'm part of it. And so that was very crucial for me. So definitely Melody Beatty, John Bradshaw, Healing the Shame That Binds You, one of my most favorite books. Peter Walker, yeah. amazing. Um, the work of, uh, I just said, well, Alice Miller, her work is awesome. But one of my favorite authors of all time, which has nothing to do with codependency, um, he talked a lot about the self and self-esteem, was Nathaniel Brandon. Wow. He passed away not too long ago, but... I could read that man's work forever. He's one of my favorites. Yeah, I scanned one of my favorite. I scanned his book um, like a while ago, so it's a nice reminder. Did you do the? I think he has lots of prompts in, in that book. Did you do those prompts? I was just curious. Um, honoring the self, yes. Okay. Now I think I should actually re revisit them myself. Um, but what what he affirmed for me because I came from a childhood where my father and mother consistently told us not to think, right? That what we thought wasn't relevant. And so in his books, here he is a psychologist and he's saying children need to feel seen. So to me, I still needed an authority figure. I still needed some representative of the higher self to tell me, yes, Lisa, you're on the right track. Yes, children need to feel seen. So it was so affirming for me to know that, okay, I'm on the right track. Okay. We need to feel seen. And I, I think everybody should have to read his work, honestly. Thank you for that. Uh, what is, uh, what would you say to your 18 year old self? Oh, I'd sit her down. I'd probably give her some ice cream because she was starving herself at the time. She was exercise addicted. Um, I would probably try to explain to her, I would probably try to get her to understand that the way her mind worked, it was so, so obsessive. Um, if I was talking to my 18 year old self and she could recognize that I was her older self, I'd tell her that I see you and I understand why you feel so insecure. 
and I understand why you feel so inadequate and I understand why you're trying to fit in. It's not your fault and you are enough. Become a writer. Don't go into nursing school. Follow your heart. Become the writer you always wanted to be. Love your parents. Just don't expect anything from them. Honestly, honestly, because they can't give you what you need. And don't chase boys. Don't chase boys. Don't think that you have to be good enough for a boy. You don't. You are enough. Um, and do the things that you love to do. Even if no one you know likes to do the things that you like to do, do what you love to do because that's how you'll find your tribe. That's what I would tell my 18-year-old self. Um, you are, uh, produce uh, content on a lot of different platforms. Uh, you have alluded to your class. Um, could you, uh, where can people find you, your books, your, your, your courses? Uh, and if uh, you could, you know, kind of... Uh, talk about your courses you know i know it's been alluded sure. to in the, during the course of this interview but sure so um anybody that wants to find out about my work can go to my website at www.lisaaromano.com um and in the top tab you can just poke around you'll see the 12-week break the coaching program the master class i also have a membership class a membership site um and the membership is a monthly membership and inside the membership you get a login to a website and I have a bunch of my courses, workbooks, journaling prompts, challenges. We have a warrior of the month and we also work off of monthly themes. June is the mother wound. Um, next month, I think we're working on shame and so on. So every month has a, a monthly theme. So there's a monthly podcast, a monthly meditation, monthly journaling prompts, whatever. A private Facebook group. And that's for people who... It's only for people, I only want people to invest in it if they're hungry for this information. They're actually going to be inside the website and take advantage of it. Um, if you're going to purchase the website and not use it, don't purchase it. You're wasting your money. You're wasting your time. Because there are so many resources. I wanted to create a one-stop shop for somebody who wanted to know how to heal from codependency and narcissistic abuse. So that's the membership site. As far as the 12, 12-week break the coaching program, it's a course that you took. It's a course that I moderate along with the team for 12 weeks. And um, three modules, four weeks each module. The first module is about the awakening phase. We've got to figure out what's going on, right? The second phase of the program is accountability. We've got to figure out what we can control in our own lives and start to exercise those self-control buttons or those self-control muscles so that we can be powerful. And we know that we can switch when we have to. We don't have to go down the rabbit hole. And the third part of the program is we're teaching more life skills about self-empowerment and how people can ascend on the healing path. Um, it's a 12-week class, 13 meditations, one grounding meditation, 12 meditations. You get a new meditation each week, a new video, new journaling prompts, and a PDF that you can print and work off of, like worksheets. And there's a weekly live call on Facebook where you can ask whatever question you want. And the class, the, the usually lasts between an hour and an hour and a half. And I do my best to answer as many questions as possible during that time. All of those um, videos are logged on Facebook as well. And you get to keep the class for a minimum of three years. And you should go through the class because it's a reprogramming and a reconditioning of the subconscious mind. We want new habits. That's how you unlearn. 
Um, awesome. And, uh, you know, I just, I mean, I have a, a lot of qualities that I, you know, you're brilliant and resourceful, but I think the one that stands out for me the most is uh, you care. And I think, oh. I think a lot of people, um, you can, you can um, accumulate a, a lot of knowledge and, um, you know, improve on your own, but it's just, it's very obvious, not just um, in your videos, but how much content you create on a consistent uh, basis. So I'm very grateful for that. And I, I just feel very honored that you came on uh, my podcast and I would love to interview you again sometime down the line. I would love that. I would love that. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. So, and my masterclass is a step up. When I say step up, it's the next level because to, to, you can master your reality. You can master, but you have to master yourself. And if you can master yourself and you can, you understand the laws that govern the universe and you accept, you acknowledge the universe and how it works and you exercise some control over your vibration and you, you're no longer mentally lazy. You understand what you have to do and you diligently do what you have to do. Then you can begin to change the paradigm that's in your head. And when you do that, you change the paradigm that's outside of you. And that's when life gets really, really exciting. So first we clean up the walls of the subconscious mind. We get all the old furniture out. We get new stuff in. And then we start mastering what you really want to create. And so that's what the master class is about. Uh, and thank you. I want to say something. I really appreciate. And someone like you will appreciate the, the amount of content that I put out there. A lot of people don't get it. But I am up very early. And it's always about how can I say this to wake somebody up. When I go on YouTube and I read the comments, I cry sometimes. I'm so happy that something that I share was able to clear some darkness up in somebody. And because of something that I took the time to create has created flow in that person. Are you kidding me? I don't think there's any other way to spend a life experience than to helping people find their life. I think that's a beautiful thing. And I'm so honored to be able to do it. Yeah, I think it's uh, one of the most important things there is. And uh, I, I do wonder how many hours you sleep in a day. So, <laughs> Not that many. Okay. But not that many hours. I, I go to bed. It's all relative. If you go to bed early and you wake up early, it's all relative. Well, thank you. So you're brilliant. And thank you for taking the time to, to interview me. And thank you for wanting to interview me. Well, thank you, Lisa. And as you say, namaste. Namaste. A great big thank you to Lisa. It was truly, truly a privilege to interview her. She generates so much content. It's so consistently in such a high quality. Lisa really cares. A lot of takeaways, but one I especially like was the importance of feeling your feelings and more importantly, acknowledging it. So much information seems to be like suck it up or suppress your feeling or use a compulsive behavior to numb it or, you know, medication rather than, no, this is how I feel. And it reminds me that it, you might not be able to think your way out of trauma or, or, or intense mental pain, but you may be able to feel your way out. If you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It'll help grow the show. Until next time, this is Kawant Saluja reminding you to always be learning.